0: Welcome back to the Mildew Twang Podcast, where we chronicle our time spent in the Delta, the swamps, the woods, and beyond. Here, we share our experiences and stories ranging from simple country living to lesser known stories concerning American culture and what all of this means for us as Christians in today's world. Today, we will look at how one small creature, a measly chicken, caused me to question my personal morals and ethics and how this singular event transformed my outlook on life. One of the most peculiar aspects of life is the never-ending list of contradictions that surround us on a daily basis. The most unusual circumstance that I find myself in is that of being a hunter and a fisherman. There has not been a single day that has gone by without a deep-rooted reminder that I, a hunter, willingly and gratefully harvest animals for consumption. I know that we've dumbed this down and we use the word harvest today, and I just did so myself. But in reality, what we are doing is killing an animal for food, For property and habitat management, and for personal gain in some form or fashion. Just as God created Adam to rule over his creation and to subdue it in Genesis chapter 1, our responsibility today as humans remains the same. We are tasked with managing the resources that have been provided to us. Now, for the not so trivial question Am I a heartless killer, and how do I justify my lifestyle and my actions? It's time for a story. I attended elementary school in a little town called Kirkwood, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis. How, then, you might ask, does my accent sound like I was raised in the middle of the woods in rural who knows where? My family originates from the Mississippi Delta and the northeast rural towns outside of Tupelo. This fact has shaped my life in its entirety, and while I still retain a slight Midwestern accent when I get anxious and upset, I have been fully vetted into Southern living with my family, and rightfully so. You may or may not be aware of the fact that St. Louis has occasional supercell thunderstorms that roll through, as does all of the Midwest located in Tornado Alley. Dixie Alley, which runs through the southeast, is similar, and tornadoes are a regular occurrence everywhere I grew up. As a young boy, I grew to be so scared of tornadoes and hurricanes that I couldn't control my emotions. This was largely a result of having watched the Twister series of movies depicting storm chasers and all of their brave glory going out to chance death. These movies, along with the occasional supercell which rolled through, shifted my young mind into a frenzy and there was not a day that would go by in which I would fail to ask my parents if there was rain predicted in the forecast. I had a bad case of what they call lalapsophobia—that that is, a fear of tornadoes and hurricanes. This fear grew so great that I was ultimately sentenced to one-on-one counseling in school. On my first and only day of counseling, I was brought in and asked what exactly my fear was and what might have brought this about in the first place. We talked about my issues as we bonded over a game of Don't Break the Ice. In this game, players use small plastic mallets to hammer out blocks of ice in order to save fake penguins which are standing on a game board. I decided right then and there that I was not going to be a penguin falling through the ice, but rather that counseling was over for me and that storms would not knock me over from that day forward, but I was in no way, shape, or form going to Miss Chess Club again just to hammer on some plastic blocks. I failed to mention earlier that I was a star student, bona fide nerd, and I participated both in the math club and the chess team. I never did attend another counseling session, and my fears, while they did not fully subside, were temporarily suppressed. That is, until we moved to Mobile, Alabama, and I learned that in addition to tornadoes, we also have the privilege of riding out hurricanes every few years. To this day, having moved in 2003 to the outskirts of Mobile, my fear of storms does persist. However, it is this fear that proved to me the value of a single life and the measures that I was willing to go through to save it. Hurricane Sally blew through in 2020, less than a year after I was married to my lovely wife. In order to please her early on in my marriage, I ate my words of never owning livestock, and I built a beautiful chicken coop that would rival the Greek Parthenon. No, it was just a disheveled and repurposed shed from my parents' house she used to store garden implements and motor oil. Nevertheless, to the dozen chickens we bought and raised in our garage, this coop was a mansion. Then Sally hit with fervor close to midnight, and I was not ready for the outcome. You see... We have a house that sits down low on a hill, and there were a dozen large water oaks ready to topple like a house of cards. Our house, being lower than the surrounding trees, and me, having recalled the physics and math equations I learned in my engineering school days, would be in for a world of hurt should the storm prove to be more than those brittle trunks could handle. Around midnight we lost power, and my once resolved fear of storms spiked worse than ever before because now I had a wife to take care of, a house to protect a dog to watch over, and a flock of chickens all in the path of that terrible storm line. My childhood fears kicked into overdrive and time stood still for the next eight hours. It was an hour or so before sunrise when an awful crash took place and I knew that we had at least one large tree down, if not more. Without hesitation, I grabbed my big mag light and cracked the back door only to see a flurry of leaves and debris flying through the air. There was no telling what had fallen and what was taking place amidst all the chaos. There was, however, one interesting fact that I just couldn't shake. From midnight on, I heard a distant echoing call over the swirling wind. It sounded like a cross between a screaming banshee, for those of you who appreciate Irish folklore, and that of a love-drunk rooster crowing to his heart's delight. A banshee, you see, is a female spirit in Irish folklore who heralds the death of a family member, usually by screaming, wailing, or shrieking, and I was praying to God Almighty that this was not the case. The only comparison to the intensity of that sound was that of a gobbler turkey, lovesick with lust, hammering away on the limb. Shortly thereafter, the turkey's intensity and focus on a mate would be the end of them, and I was hoping we wouldn't end up like that. At daybreak, the wind let up slightly, and I was able to begin assessing the damage. There were countless trees down, and yard debris, trash, and roofing shingles littered the neighborhood. Out back on the hill I had no visibility to the chicken coop as the biggest water oak in the yard had split thirty feet from the ground, the top crashing across the chicken run right on top of that ugly old coop. As the wind died down, the crowing continued, and it became crystal clear that our prize rooster had been up all night crowing at the howling wind. Grabbing my boots and my raincoat, I made my way up the hillside in the backyard to make sure the chickens were all accounted for. Much to my dismay, the coop was under the center of that 38-inch diameter water oak and there were only three chickens out walking around. So began Operation Chicken Picking. I went back inside, grabbed my wife and geared up before we cut our way through the branches of that oak on a mission to save all of our little feathered babies. After catching the first three and having cut into the wall of the coop with a dull sawzall, we counted one rooster and ten hens with one hen still on the run. What should have been the end of Operation Chicken Pickin', became a search and rescue emergency as the last hen was not yet found. I believe she was under that water oak trunk and I could not resist the urge to risk my life and crawl under the coop to check. Despite knowing that there would be a massive trunk teetering inches above my back, I made the decision to push forward and look for a $2 future fried chicken dinner. After some searching, I found her wedge between the crushed coop walls and the welded wire fence beneath the oak trunk. In a race for time, With a poor girl suffering, I ran back to the house, grabbed some bolt cutters, and operating with the precision of a well-trained surgeon, I cut her free from her ultimate doom. There was no way, despite the risk to my life, that I would let a living creature suffer needlessly if I could act to help her. We all survived Hurricane Sally, thankfully with no structural damage to the house, and that chicken, two months later, became the main ingredient in a creamy pot of chicken and dumplings. Here is the conundrum in which I find myself. I enjoy hunting animals. However, I will risk my life over something so seemingly insignificant that most people would not stop and glance back at. There was almost zero personal gain in saving that one chicken. Let's dig into the meat and potatoes of the circumstances. As a hunter, I pride myself on the ability to track, kill, process, and cook wild game. I love the challenge that presents itself, and my desire to outwit my quarry is never ending. Many of those around me perceive this mindset as disrespectful, and I have been in many debates about my love for hunting and how I am merely wasting a life. I have been told that I don't have any empathy in my bones and that the value that I place on God's creation has been diminished by my personal bloodlust. This could not be further from the truth, and as a hunter, I believe that it is my duty to educate you in this matter. Having witnessed the demise of countless game animals and having used the meat, fur, skin, and bones to bring my family sustenance, I have grown to respect life more than I thought was possible. That is, I respect all living creatures. Out of this respect, any reputable outdoorsman will tell you that they have developed a deep-seated love for their quarry, and out of that love comes the act of conservation. When analyzing the North American game animal populations and investigating the history of our wild lands, We learned that hunters are the primary driving force behind the preservation and rehabilitation of our once-endangered deer herds, turkey populations, decreased quail and waterfowl numbers, and almost-extinct bison population. The first century of life in the Americas was characterized by expansion and economic development rather than on the sustainability of natural resources. As society developed, leisure time during the Victorian age brought about philosophical discussion concerning America's wild places. It was in 1854 that Henry David Thoreau wrote On Walden Pond, which demonstrated the growing focus on the beauty of nature. One passage states, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. In addition to Thoreau's work, the book The Last of the Mohicans, written by James Fenimore Cooper, served as a catalyst to kick off the conservationist movement. The father of modern conservation was the great U.S. president, Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt partnered with many like-minded men, such as Gifford Pinchot, and they would move forward to combat the scandal-filled Department of Interior. Pinchot was quoted having defined conservation as the wise use of the earth and its resources for the lasting good of men. Through his time spent serving the country, Roosevelt would create the United States Forest Service, establish 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments by enabling the 1906 American Antiquities Act. He would ultimately protect a total of 230 million acres of public land during his presidency. The Boone and Crockett Club, founded by Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell in 1887, was intended to document the most representative individuals of an animal species prior to its extinction. Roosevelt ultimately would partner with men who would go on to begin the front-line battle for North American wildlife. Over the years, there have been enormous conservation efforts led by hunters and outdoorsmen, which have served to save and increase populations of game animals. The Pittman-Robertson Act, also known as the Federal Aid in Wildlife Restoration Act, was approved by Congress in 1937. This act taxes sporting arms, ammunition, and archery equipment at 11% and it taxes handguns and fishing equipment at 10% in order to fund the selection, restoration, and improvement of wildlife habitat and research, as well as to fund hunter education programs and public shooting ranges. This act requires that money spent on license fees be used directly for that state's Game and Fish Department. More than $14 billion has been raised through this act since its formation. Through the Federal Duck Stamp, formerly the Migratory Bird Hunting and Conservation Stamp, for every dollar spent, 98 cents goes to purchase vital habitat and to acquire conservation easements within the National Wildlife Refuge System. Almost 6 million acres of habitat have been conserved since 1934 with these funds. As a quick sidebar, according to North American Whitetail, not a single species that has been designated as a regulated game animal or sport fish in the United States has ever gone extinct. This fact alone has proven that we, as hunters and conservationists, are having a tremendously positive impact. But what is it that we do different here in North America? Today, the North American model of wildlife conservation is the world's most successful system of policies and laws to restore and safeguard fish and wildlife in their habitats through sound science and active management. This model includes the United States and Canada. While I've heard many great outdoorsmen discuss this model, I have never before looked up its primary principles until now. It turns out that I am in full agreement of these principles already, as I have been brought up by an outdoor-loving family. They taught me well. The principles are as follows. 1. Wildlife resources are conserved and held in trust for all citizens. 2. Commerce and dead wildlife is eliminated. 3. Wildlife is allocated according to democratic rule of law. 4. Wildlife may only be killed for a legitimate, non-frivolous purpose. 5. Wildlife is an international resource. 6. Every person has an equal opportunity under the law to participate in hunting and fishing. And 7. Scientific management is the proper means for wildlife conservation. Hunters spend enormous amounts of resources on licenses and fees nationwide supporting state and federal programs which aid conservation efforts, law enforcement, population studies, and more. This is fine and dandy. However, many hunters, myself included, sometimes fail to take actions on our own as we are susceptible to the bystander effect. This means that when there are several observers present, the pressures to intervene do not focus on any one of the single observers. Instead, the responsibility for intervention is shared among all the onlookers and is not unique to anyone. As a result, no one helps. This means that we all see the need to act, but we assume that those around us are already taking action and we excuse ourselves from aiding due to the belief that what is needed is already being done. I charge you all with studying local conservation efforts and looking towards the future of preserving the species you enjoy chasing within your immediate operating area. This may be through improving private land habitat, serving in local conservation-based organizations, and continuing to support your state's DNR programs. This year, I have focused on wood duck habitat management on a small parcel of land that we hunt by building wood duck boxes. We are also implementing controlled burns and managing a pine plantation to restore the area back to a natural state. Small actions can lead to tremendous effects if we all work together towards a common goal. If, as a hunter, you can kill without regard for the animals that you were chasing, you might need to reevaluate your actions and your intent. I'll be the first in line to fight for the game animals that I love, and I consider myself to be as much a part of their lives as they are a part of mine. When a duck is wounded on the water, you better not get in my way, because I have been proven to chase them down, swimming up to a quarter mile to retrieve winged divers so they would not go to waste. I'm sorry if you happen to be in an adjacent blind on that day, but I sure hope you got a kick out of watching me suffer. As of the past Wednesday night at church, my reputation has been founded in that I am a better retriever than any number of tracking dogs and retrieving dogs alive today. I have spent the night in the woods more than once tracking a wounded deer to ensure that it is recovered and utilized to the fullest extent possible. I crawled into a smashed chicken coop during a Category 2 hurricane to save birds that had no control over their surroundings. The Lord God has charged us to rule over and take care of His creation and I will do so in a way that will bring him glory and honor all the days of my life. That singular chicken proved to me how far I will go to protect his creation. As for being a heartless killer, you should know by now that my heart belongs to the animals that I so dearly love to hunt. I will fight to conserve them with every breath that I take while I enjoy the bountiful harvest that awaits. I do not owe it to anybody else to justify my actions or to explain my reasoning. What I want you to understand is that I am now, and always will be, a hunting conservationist. For the record, my fear of stormy weather has not subsided, as evidenced by my response to the tornadic conditions and massive storms we had last week. I didn't sleep the entire night while the storm front was blowing through. However, I look to the Lord to manage this fear now, as His power over the storms of life are evident in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 6, when Jesus calmed the raging seas. I sure hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. I have listed all of my sources in the episode description. Here is a personal shout-out to North American Whitetail, NC State's College of Natural Resources, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, and the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies for publishing articles that were used to write this show. Please take a look at the links to their articles in the show description below. Things are slowly coming together with the audio future podcast planning, and outreach goals, you may have noticed minimized background noise in this episode versus episode one. Thanks to the school of hard knocks, post-processing is going to become more and more effective as we venture through these stories together. This week alone, I've learned how to set the quote-quote loudness factor of a podcast, how to post-edit background noise, and how to bang against my desk when I failed at recording and had to re-record over and over again. I now have a multi-channel audio interface up and running, and in the near future, we will be updating our podcasts with guests and friends on board for storytelling. Tune in next week for more. And if you have any questions or comments, please reach out via Spotify Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, and please follow us and rate us as we grow. Love in Christ, Jay Caldwell.